Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. On the evening of the 27th of June, 1787, the historian Edward Gibbon wrote the final sentences of his great book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. It was, he wrote, among the ruins of the capital that I first conceived the idea of a work which has amused and exercised nearly 20 years of my life. And since then, he said, his research had taken in many of the events most interesting in human annals, from the artful policy of the Caesars to the foundations of Constantinople from the character and religion of Mohammed to the ruin of the Greek Empire in the Middle Age. The fall of Rome, said Gibbon, was the greatest, perhaps, and most awful scene in the history of mankind. But Tom Holland, it took Gibbon 20 years to write that book. It's a massive, massive book. And what he doesn't actually quite tell you is when the Roman Empire fell, because the story of the decline and fall for Gibbon takes centuries, and it actually goes on for centuries after the date that is most commonly given as the fall of the Roman Empire. So if I look it up on Wikipedia, Tom, Mm -hmm. or in uh, Google, it will give me the date 476. And I think this whole podcast is about when Rome fell, and we wouldn't be doing this podcast if 476 was the easy answer, would we? No, absolutely not. Um, uh, so I think that this is, um, a really interesting angle on the whole process of, of, well, as Gibbon said, the decline and fall of the Roman empire. Um, and the, is there a single date where you can say the Roman empire fell? Um, as you said, the, the kind of the, the traditional date, I mean, actually, you know, there's the, the 23rd of August, 476, which is when the very last Roman emperor is deposed uh, and he has the ironic name of Romulus Augustulus. And it's ironic because Romulus was the first king of Rome. Augustus, so Augustus means little Augustus, uh, was the first Roman emperor. So it seems a kind of perfect <laughs> drawing of the line <laughs> under the great structure. But um, of course, as as Gibbon su- suggested in that passage that you read, there is the salient fact that, of course, um, what we're talking about is the fall of the Roman Empire in the West. And there is an Eastern half ruled from Constantinople. Yeah. And and that of course continues 
uh, until you know Constantinople falls to the to the Turks in 1453, and that has been the other traditional date um, on which the Roman Empire falls. Now, I would argue that both those dates are inadequate, although both of them are, are very very significant punctuation points. Okay. So I, I thought that this would be a kind of interesting way to explore the broader theme of of decline and fall. It's a brilliant way of doing it, actually. It's a much more interesting way in some ways than than why did it decline and fall. But maybe we should start with the empire itself. I mean, obviously, this is a, a whole different podcast, but when did the Roman Empire start? Imperium, which we translate as, as empire, means kind of rule, authority, and it's something that is invested to begin with, with magistrates, with um, political figures. Uh, and it's it's only once um, that comes to be associated with physical territory that you start to get the idea of of an imperium being something physical, so so being an empire. Uh, and I suppose you, you know, if you if you're saying on that level, um, Rome, according to to legend, is founded as an aggressively military state. So Romulus, the first king. Um, he he launches an attack on a neighboring king, kills him with his own hand, brings his armor back, dedicates right. it to um the to, to Jupiter on the on the Capitol, um, below which Gibbon many, many centuries later would meditate on the fall of the Empire. But he dedicates the armor, he celebrates a great triumph, and from that point on, Rome is a military power. Yeah. Um and it's a military power of a, a, a kind that the Mediterranean had never seen before. And the measure of that is that Rome ends up achieving something that no power in history has ever done which is to bring the entire seaboard of the mediterranean under its unitary control so that happens under i mean at that point where you've got the whole of the mediterranean that basically happens doesn't it's under augustus the, and the first century bc under yeah. octavian um julius caesar's adopted heir who takes the title augustus or is given him by the senate and he's commonly remembered as the first emperor i mean his his name was Imperator. He changed his name, didn't yes. he? To, yes. So, to I mean, all these names kind of, so Augustus uh, means halfway to heaven, basically. So, yeah. you know, you're halfway to heaven, victorious general, son of a God. These are all proper names. They're not titles. So he's, he's uh, <laughs> in many ways, a, a sensationally immodest man. Yes. And what you, what you say, what you could say. So if you're looking for dates for the fall of Rome, the end of Rome, um, what you could say, is that Rome ends when um, when the Roman people become slaves? So, so, so when the res publica, the affairs of the, the public matters of the state, are subordinated to the rule of one man rather than to the Senate and the people of Rome, and so that is a view that accompanies the civil wars that leads to the, the, the rise to power of Augustus. So, the emblematic figure who who, who symbolises that is a man called Cato. Cato the Younger, there's an elder one who's also famous. Um, and when we did our episode on uh, the crossing of the Rubicon and the, the kind of the backstory of that, the, the, the collapse of the Republic, um, Cato was, we, we left Cato out because he was in a way a too big a figure to introduce. But he's a figure who, for his contemporaries, uh, symbolized um, everything that made the Republic Roman. So he was a kind of steely, flinty embodiment of the determination of the Romans never to accept rule by a single man and the sense that to be Roman was to reject slavery. Yeah. And Caesar crosses the Rubicon. He wins a, a sequence of great victories. One of these um, is fought at a battle 
uh, in North Africa at a place called Thapsus in 46 BC. And, and Cato is in a town called Utica. He's brought the news of this great defeat that Caesar's army is marching towards Utica and he, he kills himself. And this provides a model of behavior that aristocrats who look back to the great days of the Republic, when aristocrats like them had not been subordinated to Caesar's, would every so often kind of take up as a model. So yeah. under, the, under the, you know, the oppression of particularly tyrannical Caesar's, they would, they would commit suicide and consciously evoke the model of Cato. And the reason for that is, is um, it was kind of summed up by Cicero, the, the great orator who himself ends up being um, put to death by the, the alliance between Mark Antony and the future Augustus. And he's, he, he wrote that all, you know, every, other, every other people, every other nation, every other city, they can endure slavery. And the evidence of that is that they have submitted to Roman rule, but Rome cannot and so therefore if Rome submits to slavery it is no longer Rome. Well that's so, obviously yeah I mean the fact that Rome does then persist with under the emperor's centuries suggests that I mean if Cicero pitched up in the 4th century or 3rd century and said this is not Rome I mean people just laughed at him. You know. Yeah but you can see the rhetorical force of it. Yeah because and it's indeed him, the moral force of it. Yeah because that's to him Rome is an idea but obviously for the for the Rome is an idea that's a republican idea. But obviously, for the duration of what we commonly think of as the empire, so the period from Augustus onwards, Rome doesn't mean freedom from slavery so much as it means order, structure, continuity, um, law, taxation, security, these kinds of things that are commonly attributed by empires to themselves. Um, and, And there is a kind of, I mean, that, I mean, there is obviously a continuity of a time period where power is exercised over the Mediterranean, the surrounding territories, largely from central Italy. And obviously yeah. then it, it moves yeah. it moves away. But we can talk about, so the, so the empire in the fourth century, let's say, I mean, it looks different in lots of ways, but it's still the same civilization, isn't it? As the, yes. as the, the empire in the first century BC created by Augustus. So a century before in 248, Rome had celebrated its millennium. Um, and this is in the middle of the third century, which is a period of convulsive civil war, barbarian invasions, um, general collapse. Um, and yet there is uh, in this celebration of the millennium, a sense that um, already that Rome is becoming the eternal city. And so the idea that Rome cannot fall is st- really starting to bed down. And actually, I mean, this is this is quite a radical kind of change because actually, for, for most of their history, the Romans had been shadowed by a sense that Rome might fall. I mean, there's, a, you know, it, there's absolutely a sense in the Mediterranean that is conquered by Rome that empires rise and empires fall. Because yeah, they've seen so, what happened to Egypt, what happened to uh, Alexander the Great's empire or the Seleucids or the, you know, all those kinds of empires, right? Well, the, well, the classic example is, where, is when um, the, the first great kind of imperial rival that, that Rome fights and then brings to destruction is Carthage. So there are three terrible wars. And the third war against Carthage culminates when the Romans lay siege to Carthage. They capture it and they destroy it utterly. Um, you know, they, they wipe out not just the physical fabric of the city, but they, they, they burn um, its libraries so that in a sense, their aim is to, to, to render the very memory of Carthage absolutely gone. But Scipio Aemilianus, who's the general who has captured Carthage, he, he's watching it 
and he starts to weep and he quotes lines from Homer describing the, you know, the ruin of Troy that will come. And he turns to, to, to a, um, a companion of his, who's a Greek uh, Polybius um, a historian who himself has been brought as a kind of hostage from Greece by the Romans. And he says, you know, I, I, I dread that the fate that we are now visiting on Carthage will be visited on, on Rome as well. And he is, he, I mean, he's not unusual in saying that. Lots of Romans worry about that. And it's absolutely part of the kind of cultural swirl of the second and first centuries BC. But also, isn't that the kind of thing that you say when you're your your hegemony is more fragile. So when you're competing yeah. with people, when you know yeah. that you might lose, I mean, do people say that under Hadrian, under Trajan, centuries later when Rome appears? No, I th- I think you're absolutely right that it is bred of of the sense of instability. So the same year that um, Carthage is burned, the Romans also destroy Corinth, which is one of the great cities of Greece, and and that generates an amazing sense of instability across the Mediterranean that these two famous cities can be wiped out, and you have. You know, so the the Greeks absolutely have a sense that empires rise and fall. So Herodotus, the very first historian, in the opening of his book, he he says that you know powers that were great are now small, and vice versa. And this is one of the reasons that that he wants to write his history. So he feels that he's 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 recording the rise and fall of empires. And of course, you've got the Jews as well with their. You know, we talked about the Book of Daniel in uh, I think in in the, the Babylon episode, didn't we? Yeah. Where he sees four beasts coming out of the uh, of the ocean. And he's told that these beasts are empires that will succeed one after the other. So, and and these Greek and Jewish traditions kind of merge and blur to create prophecies that are attributed to, to old women called the Sibyls. And these in the first and second centuries BC are predicting that Rome will fall. And of course, the Romans themselves are aware of this. You know, they don't want to think about it. But when the civil wars happen, when Caesar crosses the Rubicon, when you have... Um, uh, the, the civil wars between Antony Cleopatra and the future Augustus, people in Rome look at these prophecies and worry about it. Uh, and they they have kind of terrible fantasies of Rome being trampled down by enemy horsemen, of, of the capital being burned. So Horace, you know, the great poet, writes about this. But then the achievement of Augustus really is to reassure the cultural elites in Rome, and indeed, I think more beyond the cultural elites, the, the mass of the people, that civil war is something that is is, is no longer going to happen. Yeah. Therefore, that Rome is stable, and therefore, people can start looking to the future. So Horace ends up writing. He says, you know, he hopes that 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 his poetry will be eternal, and he compares the eternity he wants for his poetry with the spectacle of the the the, the pontiff climbing up the Capitol to offer sacrifice to Jupiter. And he envisages that this will happen forever and ever and ever. And this, although you do have a, a renewed bout of civil war in, in AD 69, and although you, you do then have civil war starting to, to corrode the fabric of the empire in the third century, when, when Romans celebrate their millennium, they, they pretty much take for granted that Rome is eternal, that it does embody a kind of eternal ideal of how the world should be organised that the gods will uphold and there's no reason for it ever to fade. So let's take this story in and let's go through the narrative a little bit. So Augustus sets up the empire at the sort of turn of the millennium, basically. I mean, the empire, the structure that, I mean, that's the classic. I know that it's obviously much more complicated, yeah, yeah. but but that's the sort of classic textbook view. And then you have his successors, Julio-Claudians, and then you have a succession of kind of dynasties. And then you have this thing, I mean, 
So Zachary Watts, one of our um, listeners, has asked us about the, the crisis of the third century. Is that a break, Tom? Because you start moving towards military emperors who are no longer from the old kind of um, the, the ruling families, you know, the patrician kind of families that dominated Roman politics. You get these officers who come and go kind of sometimes within a year. Right? And, and the, the, at that point, does the, the, the system start to feel a bit different from what had been before? Or is there still an underlying continuity? Yeah, I think that the empire is transformed pretty radically in the third century and it has to be because otherwise it would disintegrate. Um, and I think that the salient fact to remember when looking at, at both the making of the empire and, and its disintegration is just how vast the distances are because this is a pre-industrial society. And the thing is that um, across the empire, there are obvious fracture points. So the, the channel would be one, the Alps would be another. The Pyrenees would be another. Um, the uh, the the mountainous terrain of the Balkans separating um, Italy from uh, from the east would be another. And of course, the Mediterranean. And the Mediterranean yeah. serves to join the empire. You know, it's Mare Nostrum. It's our sea. The Romans call it. But it also divides. You know, it is. I, it is. I think telling that Rome is the only unitary power, the only power to have made the Mediterranean kind of you know its own territory because it suggests that there that, that it is hard to join lands gathered around the mediterranean and essentially whenever you look at the um the civil wars that periodically break out um in in the empire what you see are the same fracture points so most obviously between the greek speaking and the latin speaking halves of the empire yeah but those are not just cultural they're not just linguistic they they also correspond to the, you know the, the adriatic is a, is a really long line of sea that then joins with the rest of the Mediterranean. So it's a very, very obvious physical barrier. But then also you have the, you know, as I say, the, the Alps. So, so there is, there are endless Gallic empires. Britain is always kind of drifting off. Yeah. Um, and basically that is, that is what the third century with its great crisis kind of exposes is that it's quite easy for bits of bits of the empire to drift off. And the only way that a central power can keep these together is by raising more taxes and spending them on on the military and to do that essentially you have to have a military person and by this point the central kind of belt of the roman empire has been demilitarized and so increasingly um it's impossible to rule the roman empire from rome you have to do it from the frontiers and so you get all these kind of um burly balkan yeah. peasant figures who rise to become <laughs> to become emperors and of course you get constantinople constantinople gets founded because it is a, at a convenient distance between the two key fronts for rome which is the the, the danube rhine frontier where there are um germanic tribes press you know constantly kind of pressing against it and um the eastern front where a very, very aggressive and powerful Persian empire has emerged and again is constantly kind of pressing against it. And Rome is wholly unsuited to uh, to provide a seat of empire from which to tend to both these two fronts. So that, that raises one of our first possible dates, which is 330. So that's um, the foundation of Constantinople as the, as a capital, as a, as a rival capital. But, but there's no sense to people you think at the time that that marks a sort of definitive, you know, what we would call a full stop 
um, it's 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 a semicolon rather than a full stop, right? It's not a yeah. it's, it's not the end of something. It's merely an evolution. Rome remains the the kind of the emotional, the symbolic capital. Yeah. Um, I, I think that there is a certain degree of trauma at the kind of the bleeding of some of that kind of sacral, dare I say, <laughs> emotional, cultural capital into into Constantinople. Yeah, but it's quite a gradual process. And so people within Rome are able to adjust to it, I think, fairly easily. And they don't feel, I think, that that the empire is no longer Roman because Constantinople is also, you know, it's the new Rome. It's the second Rome mm-hmm. and it's modelled on Rome. There is a, you know, a Senate, uh, the, the, the fabric of the city is modelled on the fabric of, of Rome itself. It's said that the Palladium, which... Um, had been supposedly taken by Aeneas from uh, during the sack of Troy, and which had you know been the the the, the totem um, for for Troy, had then gone to Rome and then had been taken by Constantine and, and and taken to Constantinople. So there is perhaps that slight sense that there's been a a migration, um, but I don't think it in any way it, it leads anyone in the in the empire to think that the Roman Empire is no longer Roman. I mean it, it isn't, and of course as you okay. know the, uh, the 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 empire that we today generally called byzantine they called themselves romans they yes. were the, the romeoi yeah um, well we'll come on to that in a second tom because i wanted to ask you about something else that is definitely in, associated with constantinople because in in the, in the public imagination i would say when people think about the empire that was based at constantinople and the emperors at constantinople the images that we see in our minds are often they look very like icons i mean they're christian images and obviously is it 380 the edict of thessalonica um where theodosius the great makes christianity the state religion of the roman empire now that yeah. to me as an outsider as a as a historian of the very modern period that to me looks like a definite punctuation point a cultural revolution i mean is that too strong it is a cultural revolution you know i think i think that um christianity is properly transformative however again i i don't think that that is how it seems to most Romans, uh, for the same reason that, you know, a frog in a slowly heating saucepan doesn't realise that he's being cooked. Um, yes. Because Christianity gets gets legalised by Constantine because he has his vision of, of you know, yeah. a cross in the sky. Uh, Jesus tells him, yes, conquer with, you know, in this sign, the sign of the cross. Um, and because we know what will happen and because we can recognize Christianity as something radically different to what had gone before. We attempted to see that as a kind of great fracture point as with Theodosius as well. But basically what, what Constantine is doing is what emperors have been doing actually for quite a long time, which is to audition a a, a single all powerful God who can kind of serve as a mirror image for the emperor's rule on earth. So you are an autocrat on earth. Ideally, you want a single God who can provide a mirror image to you. And also because by, you know, by, by the third, by the fourth century, the idea is, is that basically everyone is Roman within the empire. The old kind of divisions between Romans and conquered peoples has faded. Every male, uh, free yeah. male in the, in, in, within the limits of the empire has become a citizen. And so therefore you, again, that's why you're kind of looking around for a single God who can, provide a focus of loyalty for people in Egypt and Italy and yeah. Gaul and whatever. To sort of transcend um, the local the yeah. local gods. So so Constantine, before he becomes a Christian, has been auditioning um, Hercules, 
Apollo, uh, Sol Invictus, the, the unconquered son. So in that sense, Jesus is just the guy who passes the audition. I mean, he's not, it doesn't seem that radically different. Yeah. Of course, over the course of, of the, the fourth century, it comes, you know, people do start to wake up to the fact that actually something quite different is happening. So you do get um, towards the end of the fourth century, you, you have uh, senators in Rome who get terribly upset when, um, you know, for instance, statues within the Senate House, emblems within the Senate House that they see as having kind of represented, um, you know, the symbols of Roman victory and so, or so on. I mean, it's, 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 it's a bit like um, conservatives worrying about uh, statues of Churchill being toppled or something right. like that. It has that kind of emotional impact. People that get upset about it. But yeah. again, I think even then they're not thinking that, that, Ro- that, that Rome itself has fallen. Uh, that Rome itself has changed. Okay, but I agree, Christianity is 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 transformative. Let's deal with one more event in the fourth century before we take a break. Um, the Theodosius, who's the emperor who makes Christianity the state religion, he dies in three ninety five. I think it is. Um, you're the expert, not me. He and he, I think I'm right in saying, is the last emperor who rules the whole thing, because on his death. Am I right in thinking he divides it between Arcadius and Honorius, his two sons, eastern half, western half? Now, that's been done before. Diocletian has experimented with having four emperors, or, you know, working together, a sort of committee. But, but this is the point. After this point, after 395, there is never one man running the empire ever again. Isn't that a big punctuation point, Tom? Yes, absolutely. It, it, it is. Um, although, as you say, it's it's not um, radically innovative because it, actually, I mean, if you, you know, if you go, you go back to the first century BC and you think about those civil wars, what's striking is how you get exactly the same split then. So when Caesar right. crosses the Rubicon, you, Caesar takes possession of the Western half, including Italy, and Pompey and the Senate go to the Eastern half. Same uh, and then of course, Octavian. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that is formally done. So there's, there's, you know, there's a triumvirate, but one of them, Lepidus, gets kind of shunted to one side. And essentially, you know, it is formally decreed that the future Augustus will rule the Western half and Antony the Eastern half. So it, it, in that sense, it's perfectly possible to have an empire where there are kind of two halves and there are two emperors. Um, it, it, it's not entirely going against the grain of Roman history for that to happen. And you're right, that, that, but from that point on, the sense of there being a Western half and an Eastern half absolutely beds down and for those people who don't know who aren't experts in this uh the eastern half is the richer kind of more dynamic cosmopolitan it's basically the more interesting half even though we think of it the other way around isn't that right tom i mean yes so so absolutely the the uh the eastern half is compared to the western half fabulously rich that's not to say the western half doesn't have very rich areas as well it does but but the east is 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 more kind of cultured, more sophisticated, and and definitely has more gold. Okay, very good. We will take a break um, to inspect our own hoards of gold, and we will return uh, to talk about more dates when the Roman Empire might have fallen or not. See you in a minute. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. 
Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Tom, I bring tremendous news. Our friends at Unheard have been back in touch. The um, the, the free-thinking internet magazine. The crucial question, Tom, do you know how to spell it? U-N-H-E-R-D. I'm thrilled to have them back as sponsors because uh, I think they've been going from strength to strength. Pushing back against herd mentality? Pushing back against herd mentality, but also recruiting really excellent columnists, um, among them yourself. Yes, I I write for Unheard about every two weeks. Um, I've written for them about Tory leadership contenders. I've written for them about Vladimir Putin, very much not a friend of the show, I have to say. Yeah, I've written for them about J.R.R. Tolkien, which greatly annoyed you at the time because I didn't mention religion. They had Hadley Freeman recently. Brilliant article, actually. A, a, a great range of uh, different voices, different perspectives, um, dif- different political standpoints. Um, and I, I think it's a wonderful website. Uh, they put, what's kind of three or four kind of essays up every day. Uh, yeah. and- but you wrote an excellent essay for them after the, the sort of Trump Capitol riots, didn't you? About the parallels between the fall of Rome, subject of today's podcast, and contemporary America, didn't you? What did you say? I said that, um, so it was about, was was America going to fall as Rome had fallen? Uh, and I argued that um, because the founding fathers modelled uh, the American Republic on the Roman Republic, they were shadowed by the threat both of autocracy and then of final collapse. Uh, and obviously there was a lot of, uh, you know, in the wake of the, um, the storming of the Capitol, uh, there was a lot of anxiety about that. But I argued that uh, the, the parallels were in a way so tendentious that Americans needn't worry on that account, that just because it happened to Rome, it's not necessarily going to happen to America. So uh, cheer up was my message. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable, I mean, America is not an empire in any way, thing like the same way. I mean, it's just an utterly different society, isn't it? So I mean, I think, I think the only, the the, the only, um, the the real way in which it kind of affects the, the discourse in America is that the very existence of the parallel leads people to think that, um, you know, it'll inevitably fall. <laughs> that it might actually happen. And so in yeah. that sense, it, you know, people continue to talk about it. Anyway, do have a read of it. Uh, see what you think. Um, and uh, and do check the rest of the magazine, because I say it's it's full of great stuff. Now, we should say normally it is one pound a week. But as always with Unheard, there is a special offer for Rest is History listeners. So you get your first 10 weeks free, 10 pounds off, basically. Amazing value. Go to unherd.com slash rest. It's a really interesting publication that tackles these kinds of thorny stories. So there you go. You, from the horse's mouth. Goodbye. Goodbye. 
Welcome back to The Rest is History. So we are cantering through possible dates for the fall of the Roman Empire. Now, Tom, we got up to the end of the um, the 4th century. So Rome has become Christian, or at least mm-hmm. Christianity has become the state religion. Um, it is already, the empire is, I mean, this is a, a colossal subject and one that sort of bitterly divides academics to this day. So we don't need to get massively into it. But Rome is already having to face the challenge of mass migration from the east. In the year 410, Rome itself, the city, is sacked, isn't it? Um, yeah. This colossal moment. Can you tell us a bit about, about who does that and, and why? And why that's not the fall of Rome? Yeah, so um, the last time that Rome has been captured by barbarian enemies was with the Gauls back in the early 4th century BC. So a long, long time before uh, for a long time, Rome did not, it, you know, its walls have been left to crumble. Um, then in the third century, it's a measure of how turbulent the times are that that vast walls are built. And these are the walls that you can still see built by the Emperor Aurelian. But no one thinks that, that Rome, you know, there's a serious chance that Rome will be sacked. But then in 378, um, there is there is an absolutely disastrous battle. Uh, the worst defeat that the Romans have suffered um, since the time of Hannibal, who had uh, the great Carthaginian general. And essentially, this is this is a kind of immigration crisis, if you like. Um, uh, people called the Goths um, are trying to cross the Danube because um, in their rear there are all kinds of uh, kind of the distant hoofbeats of the Huns are starting to be heard. Um, they want to cross over. Um, the Romans agree, but it all kind of goes wrong. They set up camps. The camps aren't very good. Then they um, and essentially the Goths who've crossed over. Uh, they attack the Romans. The Romans then attack them. The Romans lose. An emperor is burnt to death in a shed. Um, that Valens, and, Emperor yes, Valens, and it tears a massive great hole in the um, in the, the available manpower to, to to the to to the Roman Empire. And essentially, you then start having bands of Goths roaming around um, the various provinces. And you know, th- again, this isn't kind of something exceptional. Outsiders have 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 repeatedly been kind of brought in within the fabric of the empire and settled and made Roman. The problem with with the aftermath of Adrianople is that this hasn't happened, and therefore the Goths feel that they have a kind of license to start roaming round. And what happens in four ten is that under their king Alaric, they fix on the richest prize of all, uh, Rome, and they turn up and they discover that actually, uh, you know, the capital of the empire has no clothes. It can be so. This is an extraordinary thing, and to people who don't know the story of the kind of the the sort of the late antique period, of the sort of late Roman period, it will seem completely bewildering that this kind of massive. I mean, it's a, I don't know whether you'd call it a horde or whether academics today would consider that too loaded, but this sort of this sort of roaming tribal kind of gang are able to basically roam all the way into Rome. Rome is undefended. Or, or, or weakly defended, shall I say, and they're able to just get into the imperial capital and kind of smash everything up. And you know it, it, that that would seem extraordinary to to to. I mean, the image of that happening in you know any modern society would be unthinkable, right? Well, but I think it's the measure of um, of how prosperous and um, unaware that it is in the process of declining and falling um, <laughs> Roman Italy is. That people just it doesn't you know cross people's mind that 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 might happen um, because as I say you know Italy and Rome have have, have basically been you know, Rome hasn't been sacked by foreign enemies for centuries and centuries and centuries and so that's why when it happens it is such a shock 
it it affects it affects what is now a Christian world in in contradictory ways. So Saint Jerome, who is uh, he's in the Holy Land at the time, and he's brought the news, and he regards it as an absolute c- catastrophe. He he hails Rome as the mother of the world. He can't believe the news of of, of what's happened, and that is to associate Rome with basically with with christianity yeah that therefore the attack on rome is an attack on 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 the church because the goths well. are still pagans at this point are they i think they they're Arians, so they're kind of different kind of right. um a, a different kind of christianity jerome articulates what will become a very very influential understanding which is that um rome's eternity is ordained by god that that rome had been brought into existence so as to provide the perfect um setting for jesus to be born and then for the church to spread so jesus is born in the reign of augustus um and there are all the roads and there are the shipping lanes and everybody's joined under the same ruler so therefore the christian message can spread and this is the doing of 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 the almighty um and this then feeds into a, a kind of very distinctive understanding of um paul's second letter to the thessalonians where he writes about the antichrist and Christian scholars come to the conclusion that um, it's the Roman Empire that is stopping the Antichrist from coming. And that therefore, as long as the Roman Empire exists, the Antichrist won't come. Um, And so therefore, Rome gets written into the fabric of the the, the history of the future, that the book of Revelation and that the the sense that Christ will come again is absolutely kind of writing in people's imaginations. So that's... the sense of Rome as an eternal city in that sense is Christianized. The idea of the Roman empire as something that will play a part in the kind of great apocalyptic drama that Christians believe is looming yeah. is, is, is kind of an important feature of this period. But there is the fall of Rome has another very, and ultimately more influential impact, which is on Augustine, the great Bishop um, from North Africa. And he responds to non-Christian senators, non-Christian intellectuals who look at um, the spectacle of Rome being sacked. And they say, this has happened because we have turned our backs on the traditional way of doing things, the traditional gods. We have abandoned them. And therefore, um, this shows that we should go back to the old ways. Right. And Augustine says, absolutely not. It doesn't prove this at all. But his argument is, is the radical one that Rome is not particularly significant that um all of all of humanity all the world is fallen and therefore rome is implicated in that and therefore in the long run it doesn't really matter if the empire stands or falls because what matters is the church and what that does is to set up an absolutely crucial contrast between the idea of the church and the empire which will have very very momentous implications for for medieval europe and and i think right the way into the present okay but to most people who are not you know keen listeners to or readers of augustine presumably it does matter that rome still stands that the the tax taxes are still being paid aqueducts yeah. are being repaired troops are you know that there's law and order i mean it actually genuinely matters to people that rome falls or doesn't fall and it yeah. doesn't fall in 410 so the goths have their sort of sort of hooligan rampage in rome but then that's 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 not the end of the empire Right, that they somehow, the, although the Western Empire no. clearly at that point is is ailing, struggling to cope, it, it still continues, doesn't it, for decades? Yes, but it, it, essentially the sinews that have joined 
the various parts of the Western Empire together are starting to be cut. So around 410, Britain seems to essentially slip the moorings. And the more that the ability of uh, the central empire to to maintain a monopoly of force, which is what the Roman Empire had always been about. It's about maintaining monopoly of force. Yeah. Once that starts to slip a, a centralized control, then the standing temptation for warlords, whether they be Roman or barbarian or both, essentially to kind of carve off fiefdoms yeah. from the mass of the empire becomes overwhelming. And the more they do that, the more the empire, the, the process of implosion right. carry, because is basically, set in train. If, effectively, I suppose if you're a local commander or a local, a gang boss is the wrong word, but you know, the, the local strongman, there's a point at which you just think, I'm not going to bother handing on my slice of the tax take to the guys above me. I mean, they, they don't have any troops. I can just do what I like and keep it for myself. And then, and then presumably it's a, um, not a short step, but it's an inevitable step that eventually these people will say, well, well, I could be king. I mean, I well, could be king of this place. Well, this is why this is why the barbarians are so important, because actually the, the, the Roman elite is very, very civilian, very civilian. I mean, you know, all they do is study Virgil. Um, sure, they go to the baths and they, they go to the baths and things like that. But they're not they're not military men. Yeah. And so essentially this has been franchised out to um barbarians who are often you know just as you know they all speak latin and you know they're as roman as as anyone but they but they're you know it's a bit like in china you have a very very civilian ruling elite a ruling caste and they're the people who in the fifth century can't really cope with it because that whole kind of framework depends on there being a monopoly of violence that's maintained by the by by a central emperor when that ceases then you start having to accommodate the military men who inevitably are starting to take over and we call these barbarians but they're you know often very very romanized as we said so you start to get you know the people carving out chunks of gaul then um you get the vandals who sweep through spain and then crucially they cross into africa and africa is the the great grain basket that keeps rome fed and once that's gone then really there's nothing left uh, and rome is in real trouble then and this is the background for this this key date. Um, yeah, I thought we'd come to this. So let's so let's get to the fourth of September, four seventy six. So Romulus Augustulus has been. He is a boy. Am I right? A teenager? A, yeah. a small boy. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, he is named after, ironically, Rome's founder, and his second name means Little Augustus. I think is that right? Yeah, it's an abusive nickname oh, okay. i mean it's, it's romulus augustus so it's not really so so to, uh, we say oh it's ironic he's called that but it's not it's not an accident it's it's deliberate it's a way of mocking and belittling yes him. yeah and he is basically deposed isn't he by a guy called odoaco i don't know how to pronounce yeah. it um who's the head of the ostrogoths yeah and, and who basically just kicks him out of the i mean how does it even work does so he, so uh, um, Romulus Augustus is the um, he's the son of a guy called Orestes, who is um, a kind of a, a Djokovic guy. He's from you know the <laughs> okay. Balkans. He's an anti-vaxxer. Uh, he's a, um, and he's been uh, he's been appointed um, the the magister militum, so basically you know the head of head of the army um, by a guy called Julius Nepos, who also is from the Balkans. Um, and Julius Nepos. He's he's the last emperor to be crowned in Rome. 
until Charlemagne. Sorry, a really, really boring, banal question. When you become emperor at this point, what does that actually mean? I mean, do you get given a special, do you get, get a crown? Do you get a robe? Yeah, yeah. yeah, you get the robes, you get the, yeah. And absolutely. what do you do? Are you doing the paperwork? Are you kind of? Yeah, yeah. And you have civil servants and you have and civil stuff, servants, all that who kind just of stuff. constantly bring you bad news at this point. But by this point, essentially, your, your rule has shrunk to Italy and, and a section of the Balkans. Okay, and you're very likely to be toppled in a coup, which is which is um, basically what happens. That Orestes stabs Julius Nepos, who's appointed him in the back. Julius Nepos um, crosses the Adriatic to hang out in his native Dalmatia in the Balkans. Orestes makes his son emperor. Orestes then gets toppled by Adurka, who you've mentioned, the king of the Ostrogoths. But basically, there's very little to choose between them. They're all kind of scrapping over the over the you know the the feast. Um, and Adurka just decides, well, this is pointless. I mean, you know, there's no emperor. I'm just going to make myself king. Uh, yeah. And so that's what he does. And he packs um, uh, Romulus Augustulus off to uh, the villa of a famous general from the time of Caesar called Lucullus, the guy who uh, brought the cherry back to Rome. And um, as the far cherry. as we know, yeah, what? the cherry. He brings the cherry back. Where the cherry been? Uh, Pontus on the Black Sea. Okay. Wow. That's a claim to fame. Poor old Romulus Augustulus kind of, well, poor, I mean, they... Yes, he seems to have had quite a nice time. The villa was clearly very yeah. swanky. He's the, so, Richard, uh, he's the Richard Cromwell of Romania. Yeah, he's of, the Richard uh, Cromwell. Exactly. Of Roman exactly. <laughs> Except we don't know how long he lived. He, I mean, we don't really know what happened to him. But he is not actually the last. So this is why saying that 476 is the date of the fall of the Roman Empire is wrong, because um, Julius Nepos is still very much on the scene. It's just that he's the other side of the Adriatic right. in the Balkans. Um, and he lasts until 480 when he gets murdered. So if you wanted to say the end of, you know, the last, when does the Roman Empire in the West fall? It would be 480, I think. But, but, and this is crucial. But yes, yes. And Dominic, yes. And the other but, the other but yeah. is that Adoica does not completely cast off Roman rule because yeah. he sends the insignia of the Empire of the West to Constantinople. And he basically rules as a kind of, you know, he, he gets his legitimacy from the fact that he's a, he's a, a friend and an ally of the emperor in Constantinople. So so in a way, actually, what's happened here is that Odoica is, in a way, saying you don't need an emperor in the West anymore. You, you're, the, you're still the overlord, the guy in Constantinople, but I'm your man in Rome now, and we don't need a separate emperor. Is that basically what's happening? Yeah, that is basically what's happening. And it's a way, it, it, it serves both sides well, because it gives prestige to these kings so he's succeeded by um by theodoric who uh you know is very is a very roman figure um and italy in this you know under under Odoca and theodoric remains very very roman consuls continue to be elected the senate still sits in in the senate house uh, chariot races happen in the circus maximus basically the romans have no idea that the roman empire in the west has fallen and in lots of ways it hasn't it, you know, the, the framework is still functioning. Quick question for you. Has the focus moved from Rome to Ravenna at this point? Because it does move to Ravenna, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. So so Ravenna had been the kind of the, the, the place, again, where the, where emperors within Italy uh, are based because it's up north. So close to the, you know, close to, to, to where all the action is. And you have a, you, you, it's open to the sea so that you can kind of slip away and you can have constant communications with Constantinople by sea. Right. So, yeah, so so everything is in a state of flux. But if I kind of pitched up Tom in Ravenna in 490 and I said to somebody, if I did some Vox Pops, you know, has the Roman Empire fallen? Would people have said, what would people have said? 
I think they'd have said no. I, th- I think they wouldn't have understood the question because all around them, the evidence of Roman civilization and Roman cultural practices and political practices carries on. It's just that there isn't a, an emperor ruling in Italy, but there is an emperor in Constantinople. So all the Romans can feel that they're still the Roman Empire still exists. Meanwhile, Theodoric can feel that he is, you know, he's integrated into the Roman system, but he is a king. And so he d- he does this in the kind of classic way by issuing very Roman style coins and medallions, but showing himself with a moustache, which no <laughs> no self respecting Roman would ever wear. No, no, of course not. They'd look ridiculous. And further afield, the same thing is kind of happening. So in in Gaul, where obviously the hold of of Constantinople is very very much weaker, even so, you're still getting the same kind of game being played. Um, so you're getting. Uh, so Anastasius, one of the one of the emperors in Constantinople in the fifth century, sends messages to um, to, to Clovis, the Frankish king, saying, um, "You know, I'm appointing you a consul, and this is great. Clovis can pretend to be a consul, but that's completely meaningless to Clovis, right? I mean, does it mean anything? It's not. To him? It's not. It's not meaningless because it, it gives him a kind of stamp of prestige. Okay. So and still, likewise, matters. you get kings kind of saying very freely. Um, you know, we, we we are subject to you. We acknowledge your 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 supremacy, even though neither. I mean, both sides know that this is bogus, but it right. suits the interests of of both sides. Both are kind of flattered by it. However, yeah, by by the beginning of the sixth century, Romans are starting to wake up to the fact that something has has really quite seriously gone wrong. So, you have one of them. He writes about how what the world needs is an armed Caesar before whose advance both land and sea will quake until at last with the renewed power of his war trumpet, he will serve to rouse the navies of Rome from their sleep. And that of course comes to fruition with Justinian. I know you're a big fan of. Yeah. um, Who, who does send an expedition to reconquer first Africa and then Italy. Well, let's just ask about that, Tom. You said reconquer. So, We've moved on a generation or two from the the deposition of Romulus Augustulus and the end of what we conventionally see as the end of the Western Empire. Is there a sense now in the East that the West has been lost and that basically because the kings are no longer responding to the messages, they're saying, you know, you can stuff your consulship. I'm my own boss now. Who cares what you think? Is that basically what's going on? Yeah, they're barbarians. I mean, you know, they are barbarians. It's embarrassing. You know, it's we're kind of familiar where, where you have diplomatic or you know um, uh, treaties between powers that eventually one decides it's just not interested in it. Yeah, um, and I think that that's basically what happens. So Justinian sends this this army, which does kind of you know it's quite successful, but the collateral damage is is actually the city of Rome itself. You know, there are a series of very brutal sieges. The aqueducts get cut. So therefore, the viability of Rome as a, a major city is completely lost, and it becomes very rapidly depopulated as a result both of of the collapse of infrastructure and of kind of forced movement of people. So, if you, I think that uh, if you want to date for when does when does the Roman Empire in the West really finish? I think it's then, and I think, ironically, the grave digger of the Roman Empire in, in Italy is Justinian, the Roman Emperor, who's trying to bring Italy back into. The because the, the very because the very act of of the yeah. reconquest basically shatters the economy and the sort of landscape of the of Italy. No more Senate. No more chariot races. Yeah. Um. No more consuls. 
that's that's when it ends. But just to wind this story up, because we'll we'll obviously have to take a break now and do the rest in a subsequent episode. So often the story of this podcast. The Roman Empire has had two capitals for a long time, so Constantinople. Meanwhile, Constantinople still think everybody there thinks of themselves as Romans. To them, the Roman Empire is absolutely going strong. They are the guardians of it. They have chariot racing, you know, with the famous kind of blues and the greens that yeah, riot. And they have triumphs. So Justinian celebrates a triumph just as Romans are done in the streets of Rome. And yeah, so so it very much carries on. So this is, and, and this is absolutely, we call this, if I look up Justinian online, if I Google him, he will be described probably more often than not as a Byzantine emperor, but he is absolutely a Roman emperor. He's a Latin yeah. speaker. Okay. He speaks okay. Latin. Okay, very good. Perfect. So we have got to the mid-6th century. The Roman Empire, contrary to what you <laughs> often read, has absolutely not fallen. Um, Britain is no longer part of it, or Britannia, I should say. Uh, Gaul is no longer part of the Roman Empire. And oddly, Italy and basically Rome uh, are soon to be detached from the Roman Empire. Base. They're, they're kind of semi-detached at this point, aren't they, mid Mid sixth century. I mean, just well, in no, Ro- Ro- Rome has now been brought into back into the Roman Empire, but it's in a bad way. It's, it's going to fall out way. again pretty soon, isn't it? It's a I few mean, centuries. Yeah, it's it's there for a few centuries more. We will return next time with what happens to the Eastern Roman Empire and also the afterlife of Rome, because Tom, I think you believe that Rome doesn't die uh, with the well, Roman it does Empire. die, but there are attempts to bring it back to life, so it's it kind of takes on a vampiric form. It's undead Rome. Undead Rome, zombie Romans. So return to us next time for zombie Romans. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Rest is history pod dot com.